Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Kafaru Cast. I'm your host, Aaron Snyder, along with uh, my co-host to my left, who probably won't say much because we don't have all the mics hooked up correctly. <laughs> but uh, today we've got Patrick Smith on. Uh, people have been uh, bugging us for a long time to get him on the Gritty Bowman podcast. We never actually did that, so uh, we're going to get him on Kafaru Cast since he's the one footing the bill for the whole thing, owner of Kafaru International. Uh, he also started Mountain Smith and uh, on and on and on. I won't go into great detail. So, but Patrick, welcome aboard. Thanks for coming on. Well, good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, how you you are semi sort of retired, except when I need help, uh, <laughs> you you come in. How's that? How's that going right now for you? Are you life playing? has slowed down? Uh, I'm kind of liking it. Uh, was it a little bit at loose ends when I first started pulling away from the company, but I've been working since I was 13. So I put in about 60 years before I started pulling back and I don't regret that. So you, so you are originally from East Texas, but you moved to Colorado pretty quickly, correctly? Correct. Yes. Moved to Colorado in 1970. And then you just, uh, you give people kind of an idea. You worked, uh, well, from my perspective, you have a, an inventor's brain, like you're constantly thinking, uh, designing, you, you, you know, you've got something going on in your mind all the time. You've got a notebook, you're jotting things down. And I, I'm assuming you've been that way for a long, long time. Even before you started Mountain Smith, you always had things going on in your in your in your head. I mean, when did you move to Colorado, and and when did kind of things get going where you thought you might want to, you know, start designing backpacks or outdoor gear? Well, I moved to Colorado and and started a survival school, and also I was a backcountry guide, uh, winter and summer, and built my own equipment. Uh, my clients started wanting to buy it. So I switched over from the, what you might call the service side of the outdoor industry to the manufacturing side and started Mountain Smith. Uh, it took about nine years to get there, but started Mountain Smith in 1979, making the gear that I had been building for myself as a guide and constant user in the backcountry. Gotcha. Now, the obvious, now that was in... I, I guess you said seventy nine, but w is that correct? That's right. Now, but when did when did you when would you say uh, like Mountain Smith took off to where you were holding on with both hands um, and uh, wondering what was going to happen with the world? Because it sounds like it took off pretty quick, and when it started growing, it was it was hard to keep a hold of. Well, it was. Uh, a lot of my clients were the first employees of the. REI store out on West Alameda here in the metro area. When REI came to town, they hired a bunch of guys that I had already taught backcountry skills. And they wanted Mountain Smith packs in their store. And Seattle headquarters gave them the go ahead as a kind of a trial. And so we stocked Mountain Smith gear in the REI store here in Denver. And boy, did it take off. So then we went, of course, system-wide. And that's when I grabbed hold of the tiger's tail and 
<laughs> we had to, we went to all the REI stores around the country in a four wheel drive carry all carry all uh, international harvester truck with a bunch of backpacks and pulled out pulled up out front and said let's go backpacking and that was our clinic approach uh, we called them dirt clinics instead of carpet clinics in the in the stores and the fervor really kicked off and we took off mountain smith took off now you you um at, at that time i guess um you had already you were already relatively obviously seasoned um in the you know backpacking hunting like you know the whole nine yards now but i mean as as time went on dealing with that community uh meaning dealing with rei knowing it as i know it because i know friends of yours from back in the day who are hunters now that actually follow along with what what frank and i do um that still work for rei was rei different back then uh than it is now meaning were there a lot more hunters involved with rei or in the backpacking was it more well liked than it is now or was it something you just didn't run into an issue with well there were a lot more hippie granola heads uh, in rai and eastern mountain sports in fact all the mountain shops around the country then of course i had always been a hunter and didn't really put that in the forefront because it was a kind of a non-hunting civilian market uh i would say the well i started kifaru to bring mountaineering pack technology uh better load carrying capability into the hunting market and tried to promote on foot in the backcountry uh hunting rather than four-wheel drive vehicles and that sort of thing i would say that has been very successful and so now there as you say there are more REI people that appreciate using their own two feet to also put protein on the table. It, it definitely seems like that in some of the stores, some of the other stores, not, not so much. Um, it, but, uh, definitely, uh, well, the, the REI that, that Bob and, uh, Dan work for the, there's several ladies that, uh, do not look like they would eat, uh, elk burger and came over and have asked me to bring some down to the store which is cool one of them so one of the managers which is which is cool um now now mountain smith wise you ended up selling mountain smith you took a hiatus you actually went hunting a shitload from what i understand and then you started kafaru what when did you sell uh mountain smith how long did you take a break and then when did you start kafaru well sold mountain smith in 1994 uh kind of refined my packs that I'd already adapted for hunting, the Mountain Smith packs. I'd, I'd adapted all of my personal ones for backcountry hunting. And by 1997, I was ready to go with full-on uh, hunting mountaineering backpacks. So cranked up Kifaru in 1997, got back in harness and cranked up another business Gotcha. And then you, now you've had, uh, you know, as far as like stoves, you, when did you build like the first, um, I guess say ultralight man packable, you know, TP and stove. When did you start screwing around with that? 
Well, I've been screwing around with them a long time for my own personal needs. Uh, the the stoves and the teepees were kind of on a parallel course. Uh, I had spent my career under tarps with a fire out under the eave in front and for the warmth of it. So sustainability in cold weather, which mountains usually are. And, of course, when the wind changes, that's a mess. So I started, you get smoke in the, under the tarp, in other words. So I started trying to bring the, bring the fire indoors. And by about 1988, I had uh, a teepee-styled uh, shelter, pretty much perfected, and uh, also ultralight stove. Uh, built the first stove, bending it over my desk because I couldn't find a metal fabricator that would deal with the ultra light gauge metal to make it light enough for carrying. And so I had to build the first one hand bending it. And from there, uh, the rest is history. We're still making them. Now the, the first one you made, um, now, do you, was it a a dual mid? What was the name of the teepee that you first started screwing around with before you came out with kind of your own ideas? Um, or or was that where there was one you told me about that that um, you used first before you actually came out with a straight up teepee with the stove inside? Well, I did for uh, prototyping. I took a, a Chenard Mega Mid and put a, a skirt around the bottom of it because I also wanted to have something you could stand up in. Mind you, I was taking uh, store employees uh, out backpacking to show Mountain Smith packs, and so it needed to be pretty good size. I wanted people to be able to stand up in it, so I put a skirt on a Mega Mid. Worked for a long time trying to find a stove jack that was appropriate, and... Uh, does that answer your question and about the the first prototype, Aaron? I think so. Yeah, I mean, I know um, trying to get see. I, how would I put this? I know what I know because I'm around you all the time, and trying to get that out to the uh, to the consumer um, or the listener because you have stoves back there in piles uh, in the office, and then I had you know there's paratarps and super tarps and uh, multiple other shelters that you've you know, packed on to get it to work right for the last, you know, 20 years laying upstairs. And you kind of went from, uh, how would I put this? You were kind of before your time on some of this, if that makes any sense. Like I've seen some of your designs on, uh, sleeping bags with holes in them for the arms, the stoves, the, the teepees. No one had ever done that before. To my knowledge, I'm only 40. No one had ever really put a made a man packable stove and teepee type uh, shelter before you that I know of now had there, or were you the first that you know of that really started to come to market with it? Well, the fact is I was the first. Uh, that gives me a lot of satisfaction, frankly. Uh, by the way, the Mega Mid was a, a square, so it kept blowing down. And meanwhile, I had a, a stashed away genuine uh, Indian teepee up in the back country and being round it was far more wind worthy so when I started building my own 
shelter. Uh, I made it in the teepee shape. Had to modify the traditional geometry uh, to, to adapt it for center poles so it could be carried by a man. Uh, but wound up with the man-carryable teepees that we're still selling uh, right now. And then the sawtooth was um, a game changer and, and still is. When did you come out with the sawtooth, which is it's not a, a, a tarp and it's not a teepee. It's kind of a hybrid. When did you come out with that? Well, Aaron, how long have we been selling them? Seven years? Shit, I think, or shoot, I think it's been longer than that. Eight years? Yeah. Well, it, for my, mostly, most of my career, I've been solo in the backcountry, including hunting. And the, the teepees, the eight-man, the four-man, and so forth, for my clients, in other words, for several people, were not something I was willing to carry. So I went back to tarps and did shaped tarps, uh, the super tarp, the paratarp, uh, either a fire out front or I came up with the, the annexes for the front to enclose it and still use uh, one of my smaller stoves inside and being tarps it was a crawl in crawl out proposition and, and as I advanced in my 60s and middle 60s let's say I got fed up with crawling in and out I wanted to walk in and walk out uh, and yet still be single man uh, carry the shelter had to be carried just by me. So basically the, the sawtooth is a, the, the base platform was a super tarp. And I, I raised it, put skirt on it, put a front on it, and it got higher, a little longer, a little wider, and the super tarp was born. I'm sorry, the, uh, the sawtooth was born from it's little brother, the uh, super tarp. And there's a super tarp upstairs that I'm pretty sure is uh, at least half of my age, if not older. Um, that uh, you you you're not a gear hoarder. Actually, he is. Um, there's <laughs> stuff upstairs that's older than I am. And uh, that super tarp you had told me it was a white one was one of the. Uh, first you had started screwing around with, um, or one of the first you'd come to market with, uh, through Kafaru. Now the, the stoves, there's, I think 15 or 18 different, uh, versions upstairs. Um, and we're, and we're, um, you know, we've come out with a cylinder stove since then, but the, the big thing that, um, I would say the difference between like you, Frank and I and you, uh, with bow hunting is we, we don't cook on that too much. There's not as many hours of daylight and it's probably the fact, a different, um, I guess way we were, ha have hunted, meaning, you know, we've got daylight from six in the morning until eight or nine at night. And also it's season. warmer, uh, in archery season. Oh, exactly. I, and I, I guess what I'm getting at is you, you'll cook a four course meal back there, uh, which I've seen you do it and you've cooked for me and you cook, you make biscuits, you use the warming tray. Um, obviously you cook wild game on there. We cook fish on the, on the box stoves. Um, when you first started doing that, what was like the, um, w were people enamored by that? Enamored by that? Where was it like what, you know, the first time somebody sleeps in my, my sawtooth 
with me and it's 75 degrees outside or 75 degrees inside and, and, and 30 outside or 20, it is a, a game changer for them. They're, you know, the lights popped on and they're like, wow, I don't need to be in misery anymore. Now, when you first started doing that as well as cooking multiple different things, was it uh, like well received and people were like, did the light seem to pop on pretty quick for people? Well, frankly, they had to experience it for themselves. Uh, when you first open up the door and, and you're, somebody is in the, the teepee with the stove going, you walk into a wall of heat. And when it's zero outside and the guy in the teepee welcoming you is in shirt sleeves, uh, that's, that's the eye opener. That, that's well said. So it was a lot of word of mouth in the beginning. Uh, also, people that are used to cabin stoves or wall tent stoves that are 100 pounds can be, those stoves can be pretty airtight and last a long time. Well, a stove that weighs 5 pounds instead of 100 pounds cannot be airtight. You cannot keep the fire going half the night. I try as I might, I've, I've never been able to f figure out how, how to do it. The fact is, it, it can't be done. So people had to get uh, s solid with the idea that this stove has to be fed. It's not going to last all night. You need to accept that if you've carried it in on your back and rejoice in the fact that you can be warm while the stove is going. Go to bed warm, which makes all the difference in the world, Aaron, in terms of sleeping well. Put an arm out in the morning, restart the stove, and get up in a warm shelter. And and that's the, that, those are the glowing, excuse the pun, uh, virtues of my man-carryable stove and shelter system. Right, and I mean, for me, I, uh, I just... Uh, load that thing up to the hilt right before bed, jump in the fart sack, um, fall asleep, wake up the next day, poke my head out, start her back up again, cr crawl back in the fart sack for 15 minutes. <laughs> and then the meanwhile, coffee's on. Voila. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you hop out and the, and the teepee's warm. Um, well, that's sustainability for you. The, if you can go to bed warm and dry, we didn't touch on the being able to dry your garments out. That's that's critical, too, for sustainability out there. So being dry, being warm at least twice a day means you're not going steadily downhill day by day. Yeah, yeah sustainability is definitely the, uh, the key word there. Uh, for me, um, obviously, as you know, I have Raynaud's or whatever the hell they call it. I lose feeling in my fingers. My, my feet get cold. Um, so being able to basically rejuvenate yourself is a, is a big thing, um, for me as well. Again, like you said, drying out everything. Um, when you're backpacked in, uh, multiple miles, it is, it is life saving. I know a lot of moose hunters that, um, you know, obviously Alaska, British Columbia use like the 12 man for their base camps, just for the simple fact, uh, you are always wet moose hunting. It seems like whether it's cause you're walking through a swamp or it's just a rainy area. So, uh, that's that's a big one. Um, 
you know, as far as uh, kind of transferring over your your suspension systems on the packs, those uh, you were the first one to come up with a precision lift as well, meaning a, an adjustable load lifter angle on the packs. Is that correct? Because you patented that. Yes, I did, and I guess that's right. Now, on that, was that something? Was that one of those uh, Patrick Smith in the middle of the night pacing back and forth come to mind things? Or was that something that you just got pissed off at what was on the market and, and uh, thought, damn it, I'm going to figure this out? Well, both. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the gun bearer was the same type of a thing. It was a uh, – you because you, you hunted quite a bit up in Alaska and you wanted – uh, not to get eaten basically. And so you just kind of put your brain to work and came up with the gun bear. So the, the weapon would be at the ready, correct? Absolutely correct. Yeah. And we sell, I mean, piles and piles of those things. Um, and what that does is, and it's people have tried to copy it. Nobody's blatantly copied exactly what you've done. There's certainly a couple companies right now that have made modified versions. Um, but that carries, uh, you know, the butt stock is basically at the belt level, more or less. I mean, it's a little bit lower. And then uh, it puts your rifle more or less under your armpit with your hands free. And with the flick of a, of, a, of a switch, basically, the weapon is at the ready. How long did that take you to perfect? Was that something you got in the first month or two of screwing around with? Or did that take a little while? Uh, I wish I could remember. Probably took a while, though. And I'd never really asked you about that before because um, it was here when I got here and, and uh, it was already figured out. So I never really had, had bugged you on that one. And, and I know uh, like the precision lift, um, you know, the same with the gun bearer, uh, you know, you were the really the first and the only and actually the current load lifter angles we make that, that you and I had come up with a couple years ago. Even that we were the first ones to ever do that. I, I I took what you had already started and then you and I sat there and kind of did the brainiac thing back and forth and came up with the way it adjusts now. Nobody had ever done that either. There there had been two connection points high and low before, but that, that was it to my knowledge. Well, you're right. Uh, we put a multitude of angle selectors, if you will, uh, that could be quickly moved. Uh, and yes, that was the first. Now, now um, something else that, that I had only seen you make up until that point were your pullouts. Um, this was only what you've been stuck uh, with me bugging you for, what, six or seven, I guess six years now, seven years. That Your pullout was the only one I knew of at that time. Uh, pretty much everybody's copied the hell out of you now. Was that pullout something you came up with, or was that like out of necessity, or was there something like that you you perfected, or where did that come from? Well, it was an improvement in to my mind on smaller stuff sacks where you load from the top, and I thought there might be a better way, and sure enough, there was. The pullouts are flat; uh, they zip from one end to the other. Uh, so you can see what's in there a lot, lot better without unloading it. And the reason why it's called a pullout is it fits better in, in a backpack. Uh, it's flat. You can put it anywhere. You can lay it across the top of the load and get at things. And You don't lose as much space compared to a compression sack because it doesn't turn into a ball, which creates a lot <laughs> of exactly waste. That's exactly right. It just slithers itself wherever you or you can slither it wherever you want it to go 
Exactly. So you also, um, you know, going through the the collection of stuff in your your office, y- you helped design the uh, the MSR snowshoes, the uh, the hard plastic uh, snowshoes. You know, where there's generally on most snowshoes, uh, you have a a frame that that goes around, which is usually tubular, um, and then you have your platform in the middle of that. But you you helped design initially the all. I don't know what that material they make them out of now. But High density polyethylene. Right. Uh, so you made, when was that and, and how did all that work? Wow. Well, Bill Forrest, uh, formerly of Forrest Mountaineering, and I designed it uh, as far as the year, probably 95, 96, somewhere in there. Uh, and we wound up selling it to MSR, the the design and they've done right well with it. It's a durable uh, system. Uh, I, can, I guess I could say I came up with the tail program on it and the brake. Uh, but it was a collaborative effort with, with Bill Forrest and myself. Gotcha. And then on the, you know, kind of bouncing around a little bit here, but initially back in the day it was you uh dana gleason um and uh what's his gregory what what's his wayne gregory wayne yeah, yeah. wayne was a, a great designer and was very prominent in those days and then uh he uh he stayed in the backpacking community obviously dana uh, sold Dana Design and started Mystery Ranch. You sold Mountain Smith, started Kafaru. Um, but I think what most people don't know is is kind of the foundation of the platform of of backpack hunting um, or 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 heavy load carrying backpacks in the outdoor the hunting industry uh, was you and Dana. Um, you know, you obviously came out with uh, the you know the lightweight stoves, uh, sleep systems, teepees, all that type of stuff. Um, where, where Dana did not screw around with that. But uh, as far as, I guess, the point I'm trying to get across, there isn't much that I run across you of the new techie-type um, things where you pull out a backpack from under the table that somebody tried to do in the 90s that, that just didn't work out. Um, but that was pretty much you and Dana through the 80s and 90s uh, built kind of the platform or the foundation that everybody else is kind of trying to build their house on now. Did you and Dana... I know you've told me you guys always were very cordial with each other, but you guys were pretty hot and heavy back in the Dana Design uh, Mystery Ranch, or excuse me, Dana Design Mountain Smith days, weren't you? Oh, yeah. He was a very worthy uh, competitor. And you, I mean, I've seen you guys have talked uh, infrequently at shows and things like that, even even now. Um, he kind of went the route of large... Um, you know, military orders. And I know we go the route of more niche customized things that some of it we can't even, uh, you know, talk about, but with, uh, in the beginning, was it pretty much just you and him? Are we talking about the, uh, mountaineering pack insertion into the hunting exactly. world? Yeah. I think probably Kifari was the first, uh, I'm not sure when Dana started bringing out hunting packs, but it was a, a bit after that. But far enough long ago that uh, you're essentially right. Uh, it was a mystery ranch in Kifaru for it, for quite a while there. 
It, it is not like that anymore. Um, <laughs> so, so I understand. <laughs> yeah, there's a uh, lots of lots of different competition now, uh, but I I do think it's important that um, obviously I look at you. I mean, one like a father. Two, I know what you've done, what kind of person you are. That uh, you know, people realize. Uh, you know, you and, and Dana, and specifically, obviously, you on a lot of this stuff for the backpack hunting. Uh, you know, started this and uh, there isn't a whole lot you haven't done that's, you know, that's not getting copied now, not not trying to be arrogant at all. It's just I, I am amazed at some of the sh- stuff you pull out from upstairs, um, you know, even in the, ca- the carbon frame, carbon stay uh, uh, realm that, that uh, other companies are diving into now. You have uh, screwed around with that 8, 10, 12 years ago. Um I don't know how long ago it was exactly, but there's a pile of stuff upstairs. Well, I started doing it uh, in the mid-90s, messing with carbon fiber this and carbon fiber that. Gotcha. Been a long road. Yeah, oh, I, I can imagine. So what, uh, is there anything you would uh, you think you would do uh, different throughout the, the years? I mean, is there anything you look back on and think, man, I wish I would have, you, know, um, you know, done this or tried that or whatever? Well, no, because I, I suppose I've tried it all, and what what we're uh, building now is what worked the best, and I probably left no stone unturned. Gotcha. What about uh, as far as hunting? You've hunted Africa. Well, you've hunted all over North America. Um, you know, all over in the United States. Uh, British Columbia, Alaska, Africa. Is there any place that you didn't get to hunt that you're wanting to now, uh, looking back, or any specific animal? Uh, of course, New Zealand is on the horizon at some point. Uh, I'd like to hunt uh, reindeer in northern Scandinavia. Uh, that, that's probably about it. Gotcha. Now, um, yeah, the family dynamic here at Kifaru, you have, you had three daughters, um, Erica, the youngest, Allie, the middle and, uh, Lisa, the oldest Lisa and Allie work for us. Uh, now Allie is in charge of shipping, receiving quality control, uh, assembly, uh, Lisa's in charge of production, the cut and sew portion of it. And then Erica, the youngest, her husband is our, well, he's actually going to be doing all the IT for the podcast, which will pretty much keep him uh, full time. When you started um, Moundsmith, um, or excuse me, when you started Kafaru, Le- Ali started first, and then Lisa, after that, Lisa was working for a mountaineering store. Am I remembering all this correctly? So far, so good. Now, you hired Ali just because she needed um, a job while she was going to college, which that transferred as Kafaru grew into her just working here full time. Is that correct? Again, that's right. Okay. And then Lisa, you brought on later on um, and you hired her from, was it Molehill Mountaineering? That's right. And then at, during all this time, um, and again, I'm doing this for my own memory because this isn't something at the forefront of my mind. You were also building um, with, the tail end of Mountain Smith bike, uh, bicycle bags. Is that correct? <laughs> yes. 
Um, Because I remember... Cyclesmith was the name of that company, and uh, I invented the bikini pantier. (laughs) Oh, I gotcha. Because I know Lisa's husband is on a mountain bike in Lycra with your... (laughs) On a sales ad uh, with your panniers on the side of a bike, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, they converted to backpacks. Uh, (laughs) Oh, that's funny. That was a fun project. How, uh, as far as different things that, uh, I mean, I know you said you wouldn't really change, uh, you know, anything to speak of, but is there any design that you never, uh, I'm asking this cause I know how your brain works. Is there anything you never actually ended up coming out with that you wanted to? Well, lots of things. Uh, I'd have to think on the history of all this, uh, to, Tick them off. Well, you but you the, came out with the you can Ram- only do so much. Yeah, oh yeah, that that's a fact. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you have to hit me in the head and remind me of that frequently. <laughs> the the rambling rifle was something I didn't bring up. Uh, that it, it just slipped my mind. You when did so the rambling rifle was a sub five pound scoped. Um, it was just a project when it started. You just started drilling holes in the stock of a gun, trying to get it lighter initially. Correct. Right, because I have to carry the the rifle, and I, I also do a lot of uh, just living off the land kinds of backpacking. And actually, we had a scope three hundred eight that was four pounds four ounces. Uh, I built it for my own purposes, and gosh, at the uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation show in Albuquerque, boy, it must have been two thousand the year 2000, I was using that little personal rifle as a prop to demonstrate the Kifaru gun bearer. Mm -hmm. Well, those uh, elk hunters, and especially the sheep hunters that were attending, wanted to buy it. (laughs) So I found myself in the rifle business. Oh, gotcha. Now, you made 50 originally, is that correct? That's it. And then how how quickly did those sell, and was it just too much of a pain to keep going? Uh, We sold them probably over a period of a couple of years, and uh, sales were pretty steady. Uh, And yes, it became too much of a pain uh, to continue because it was the first and only thing that I didn't make myself or people working for my company. Uh, We had to have contract uh, gunsmiths. And uh, those those of your listeners that are into guns know what gunsmith time means. And the rifles would be late. Uh, and I had a, a customer needing the rifle to go on, let's say, a sheep hunt. And the gunsmith delivered it late, and I was left holding the bag. So I decided to cut, cut that loose. And uh, it was a great project. Uh, but... It was a mistake to not do it myself. Gotcha. And uh, is that something maybe you would probably, uh, you know, learning as you went through that, if you were to do it again or if we were to start Kafaru Arms or or build a rambling rifle again, that seems like that would be uh, one a person's full-time job just keeping everybody in line and, and quality control and, and everything else from what I've seen. Um 
it looks like it's an epic pain in the ass is what it is. Um, <laughs> and it sounds like it was, it kind of turned out that way from you, from what you've told me, uh, just for the fact of relying on finding a reliable gunsmith, um, is, is difficult. And I don't know that anything's changed. Um, well, they also, Aaron had to be highly, highly skilled, uh, gunsmiths, uh, to make a rifle that light that still shoots straight uh, requires uh, incredible what's called blueprinting uh, so that everything is lined up. And those gunsmiths don't grow on trees either. Right, right. So what, uh, what are you thinking um, as far as the, uh, the future of, of Patrick? Are you just going to keep uh, – because are you 73 now, 74? 74. 74. Um, you, you're pretty much now just kind of screwing around with long range rifle shooting um, and uh, hitting Green Mountain every day, and then you're getting you're leaving on a hunt today, aren't you? I believe uh, t- tomorrow. Tomorrow, and uh, so you uh, you're just gonna you're just not slowing down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still figuring it out, Aaron. <laughs> yeah, I gotcha. The uh, so physically though, the biggest thing you've had issues with is your knees. Is that that correct? Yeah, they've got maybe hundreds of thousands of miles on them. And uh, with uh, the right vitamins and so forth, these are still the same knees I started out with. And uh, I'm still getting around uh, plenty adequately. Oh, yeah, you you uh, you hiked in with us. Um, I don't know how far that was, four or five miles to that lake this year. And we and we fished and and. Uh, yeah, I mean, and at, hopefully I'd be happy at 54 if I can still do what you're doing at 74, um, for sure. What What do you see um, uh, Kafaru doing in the in the future? What are you going to? Obviously, I look to you for counsel from time to time, sometimes more frequently than than not. Um, uh, are you um, Are you wanting to ever get back into like the backpacking community, things like that? I think we should. Uh, I think. Our suspension systems would really help uh, that community, uh, even with lighter, lighter weight loads. It makes a difference if there's no weight on your shoulders, which is our specialty. And uh, yeah, I think we could make a really good contribution in that realm. And I think in uh, some of the things uh, you know, recent. Kafaru customers, uh, you know, maybe don't know, or you, you had designed the KU line, uh, right when I had first kind of met you and started screwing around with your packs and that KU line, you, it was a sub three pound, oh, 6,000 cubic inch, uh, backpack that could hold just about any amount of weight. I, I actually carried a, a gutted mountain goat out in it and just stuffed it in a bag and packed it out. Um, and that and that was something you had worked on uh, ten years or something. Is that a long time, right? A very long time, even back in the Mountain Smith days. The and carbon fiber approach. Carbon fiber just doesn't work. Uh, so I invented a hybrid uh, uh, stay, if you will, that was some carbon fiber and uh, kind of an exotic wood that was far far stronger and plenty light. And that was kind of the culmination of my carbon fiber uh, days that and it actually worked. Well, I can tell you, we haven't had a set ever come in broken, um, <laughs> yeah. ever. 
uh, literally, we haven't, I don't even know if we, we've never had them delaminate, um, you know, no, you know, no, like, um, what would you call it? Impact issues, I guess, nothing with the, uh, the composite. Uh, I've tried to break them over my knee and with, you know, and, and, you know, being able to deadlift five, 600 pounds pretty easily, um, reefing up on that much weight. Those, those stays are extremely tough. There is a very, very minor, uh, weight penalty compared to carbon across the board, but I can also snap a carbon of equal size, um, without putting it over my knee with just in my hands. So I, I would say it was a victory because those things are, are bomb proof, literally. Um, with that KU pack, I think the, the biggest, um, it's a pain in the ass to sew it. Uh, I think Lisa was ready to kill you, me, um, and three other people was the only issue with that was, it's just a problem cutting and sewing that material. Cause it's like a whale snot stacked on top of each other. <laughs> um, because we've looked at, uh, and we still are researching multiple different fabrics that we feel are, are comparable in, um, in strength, but also the strength to weight ratio. Even now, um, I just sent Bender down, um, to this fabric, um, which I have to talk to you about that later on, um, of this fabric show, just to look through different types of new fabrics. Uh, cause we're always trying to obviously better on what we have, but that KU fabric is pretty hard to beat. Um, that's what we make our teepees out of as well. That fabric, you, how many years ago did you, did you find that? Cause that's, you know, comparable to just a standard 30 D made in bulk, um, is what you were dealing with before. That's why you went to the, uh, current f material we do now that the teepees are used for and things like that. You just needed something stronger, correct? Uh, yeah. Uh, and it is, it's, uh, ultra high tenacity, American made, uh, military spec paraglider fabric and i guess i discovered that back in the 90s and built the first paratarp out of it i also built a paratipee out of the stuff and my experience with regular ripstop nylon and the even lighter materials was not good they self-destructed and this stuff didn't and so it became our tp fabric right and and i've done i think i've tried three different times to find something comparable that we've sewn up and did the the springtime high wind tests and, and it'll get close um in some aspects but it's not uh it's just not there as far as the uh, abrasion resistance, tear strength, things like that, as well as UV resistance. And the way I explain it, because they, you do get jack wagons online that um, you know, basically a-holes that, oh, it's 30D sil nylon. But it, it's not 30D sil nylon because 30D sil nylon, um, there's various levels. You have the, the overseas version, and I'm, I'm, I'm simplifying this. You have an American-made version, which is a little bit better, and then you have the the mill spec version. And how I explain it is, yeah, it's like a 30D seal nylon, but it's on steroids to simplify things. Um, the Asian-made 30D seal nylon, you can pretty much rip in half with your hands. Um, it's made mass-produced in very large quantities. Um and it's just not overly durable. Um, it will work for some things, there's no doubt. But in, in super high wind, especially when you have something the size of a, of a sail of a 12-man teepee, um, 
it's going to get destroyed. You know, the, the, the footprint in the, in the, into the wind of a single one man shelter compared to a 12 man, you're going to get away with a lot more with that smaller kite, basically of a, of a one man compared to a 12 man. And I don't think people realize that now when you explained it to me, um, how the, uh, the material that we use is different. It's basically in the soup that makes the strands of the material. Is that, I believe you'd call it at the molecular level. Right. And right there, I'm from Oregon. That just flew over my head. Um, <laughs> at the molecular level, uh, that's where the, the big changes happen because the, the strands in the fiber are longer by a significant amount than the strands in a standard 30D um, at, the, at the base, at the beginning point. Is that the molecular chain? There's another one for you. <laughs> gotcha. Well, ex explain it a little bit if you can. And I'm putting you on the spot here, I know, because you don't have to think about this stuff all the time, but it, it's basically the length of that, that strand. Is that correct? Yeah, the chain. And, uh, you know, basically, uh, when it was explained to me 20 years ago, uh, I've forgotten a lot of it. Uh, basic, like everything else at Kefaru, the proof was in the actual usage of it, and it proved stronger than anything else out there that even approached its weight. So that's why I adopted it, and the rest is, is more or less history. And, and I did a video, what was that, six months, a year ago? We took multiple other fabrics for, that other companies use, um, and uh, and they they weren't you know they, they weren't all horrible for sure, but you can really see when the um, the material is sewn together and you put a large amount of stretch in a in a seam line where the uh, the material that we use definitely makes a difference. Also UV resistance and the and the one thing I find uh, unique and I and I've, I actually talked to uh, the, the Petra and Stewart um, and in at, at Hilleberg. Uh, they also kind of run into the same thing where they have products come back for warranty that are three times older than some of their competitors' companies have been in business. Meaning, you have packs, you, or we have packs that come back that you came out with at Mountain Smith 20 years ago that come back to Kafaro for a warranty. A lot of the companies that are coming out nowadays are only in business for three, four, five years. So long-term durability is kind of a moot point, uh, considering we'll have a TP that was made in you know 1998 come in for service. Um, so I would say yes, uh, standing the test of time, that material has definitely proved. It's hard to say on some of the other materials, certainly some of the ones I've tested, um, that it's just not. It, it may last for three years. It may last for five, but it's certainly not going to last for 12, 15 years. It just, it degrades. And would you say UV, uh, the sun is a big problem with that over long, long periods of time? Absolutely. And, and you, you have, uh, what's the oldest teepee you think you have? Um, I think I know which one it is, but you, you've got a sawtooth that I know is the original, um, because you slept in it up until the point I think I made funny enough till you finally got a new one. Um, or no, you gave it to Paul Vertries, and then he had a tree fall into it. Isn't that what happened? <laughs> yes. Yeah, he had a tree. He had a tree fall into it, and and uh, then we then we finally gave him a new one. But would you say like the life expectancy of a teepee 
for normal use would be 10 to 15 years, 10 to 12? Oh, easily, yeah. With consistent use, sure, easily. And then uh, would you say that uh, the stove, have you ever seen, because we get this question a lot, the bottom just burn out of a stove from overuse? Not a single one. Okay, that's what I tell people because I know you've got stoves that you've burnt thousands and thousands and thousands of evenings, um, and it still is. It doesn't look degraded at all. Uh, I guess maybe it's feasible feasible in a hundred years, but I pretty much say it's impossible to burn the bottom out of a stove. Our <laughs> stoves, that's yes. correct. Yep, our stoves. Even the uh, the cylinder stoves, um, amazingly enough no issue with that, uh, the titanium belly. So what, uh, tell us a little bit about, um, just cause I found it funny. You own Kafaru and, uh, are financially extremely financially stable, but to give you an idea of how Patrick works, uh, I hate to call that van a piece of shit, but how long did you drive that Toyota buggy? <laughs> uh, 20 years, I think. So it, what was it? It was a, you you used it for the uh, because it had a sliding side door so you could get to your stuff easy, right? Yes. And it, well, it was a Toyota what? Uh, what did they call those things? It was a van, but it was four wheel drive with high and low range stick shift, and pretty much it would climb trees. And and again, um, you used that for twenty years. I, was it from the pestering of me to finally uh, to bug you enough to get a vehicle, or was it Sarah? Well, both of you. You're, you double-teamed me. <laughs> so you got a forerunner two years ago? Was that yeah, three? That's about right, yeah. And you, and you still wouldn't buy a new one. You're not. You won't buy a new vehicle, right? Not me. No. no. Now, Sarah recently got a new vehicle. How did that conversation go? Did she slap you back into position? <laughs> did you have to brace her about getting a new one? Well, she had been wanting uh, the vehicle she got for a very long time. And she's been my bride for a very long time. So I gave in. 52 years, is that right? 54, Aaron. 54. I got I to gotta keep up. Um, <laughs> holy cow. Because I, yeah, I guess that's right. Four years ago, up in Estes Park, we went to the 50th uh, anniversary. Yep. Now, she, uh, you, you guys just got back from a... A month-long uh, tour across Europe, is that correct? That's right. Where all did you go? Because I would get an occasional text that you were sipping, you know, Mai Tais on some <laughs> crazy place in Norway. Or where all did you guys go? Well, we circumnavigated the Alps, uh, basically. Started in France and went through Switzerland, Austria, parts of Germany, northern Italy, and back to Chamonix, France, uh, where Mont Blanc is, which is a spectacular mountain. Uh, they have some serious mountains in, in southern central Europe. Gotcha. Now, is it with Sarah, while we're bringing her up, she was with you the entire time through Mountain Smith, Kafaru. Now, she was the um, basically the accountant with Mountain Smith, correct? Yep. Call her the comp triller. You also had another name that... Iron lace? What was it? The, la the iron anvil? What was it? You 
she, what was it again? The Velvet Hammer. Velvet Hammer. Yeah, there you go. Because <laughs> she, uh, she was the money collector. Yeah, uh, when we were Mountain Smith, we we had dealers. We don't at Kifaru, and one of the reasons why we don't at Kifaru is the experience we had with dealers, dealer networks at Mountain Smith. Uh, some paid, some did not, and Sarah's job was uh, getting mountain smith paid and she had a, a style and you've seen it aaron you know <laughs> oh yeah she she was good at it yeah oh yeah no she uh she and i've become to a i think an understanding and and the problem is she is very uh like uh dress right dress very um what would the word be um methodical I am very half-assed. Thank God I produce, or she'd probably fire me. Um, <laughs> because I would just two different, two different methods. She uh, she is very on top of it when it comes to the financials, which is good. We'll never be poor. Um, just because we're you you've never you haven't had with Kafaru. You've never served any master, uh, if I'm not mistaken, right? You're your own man, I guess you could say, or you've you've never had a uh, an investor at, at any time with Kafaru, have you? No, we're hundred percent self-owned, self-funded. Gotcha, and and that's one thing you've definitely ingrained into my brain um, is, is growth is good, but but quality growth um, with uh, without taking any loans out, without take, extending yourself, being smart about um, the direction you go, things like that, and and it, it's working. Um, and it is nice to know that you are, you know, self-funded. I guess you could say. Um, yeah, so it's important to me, obviously, to, to do what you have told me to do in the future. <laughs> um, so anything else uh, that you want to add uh, while we're sitting here on this thing? Well, I want to relate a story about how you came to the company, because uh, you're definitely uh, the son I never had. And it's important that you're here now as I age, because you're a field guy, Aaron, just like I was, am. And I think that's rare. Uh, I remember how you arrived. Uh, you, under the name of the Elk Reaper, you were a renowned gear tester across the Internet. And some of the people that read your report said, well, you have to try Kifaru. And so you came over and visited me. And I remember one of the very first packs you tried was that KU three and 12, three pound, two, two pound, 12 ounce, 6,000 cubic inch pack. And you came back and reported not only to me, but to the world that it was the best suspension system out there. And it wasn't too long after that, that you joined the company that gave me an enormous amount of relief because I had a, a field guy that was also a great designer, which you are and a terrific marketer, which you are. Falling in behind me, taking my role at, at Kifaru, and, and that's what you've done, and I'm very, very satisfied with the way things turned out. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, and I, I definitely would say you are the father that I should have had. Um, it's been, <laughs> it's been great. I, I, one thing you've gotten, gotten, how would I, you've not only taught me. Um, you know, obviously about the, the industry, the, the backpacks, the materials, things like that. You've also taught me to, to calm the, 
calm down. Um, one, uh, which has been great for me. Uh, I'm actually sleeping more now, but life in general, you've taught me a lot to, uh, that's helped me grow up, calm down a little bit. I'm still probably a little bit more wired up than I should be. Darren, you're still Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it was, a, it's a good mix. Um, and, and even still now, obviously I pester you from time to time when I have questions and not just about current things, but, uh, things that have happened in the in the past i called you last week about a an issue with the load lifters to to jog my memory um you know because you've been doing this longer than i've been alive and i I could not remember some of the uh i guess you'd say the the story before the story of uh you know the the load lifter adjustments and you know obviously you sometimes will remember and then sometimes you'll say aaron i'm gonna have to get back to you I don't know if you're digging in notes from 20 years ago or what you're doing or have to think about it because there's there's a lot in that brain up there. Um, see, I didn't pay attention for the first 20 years of my life. I got a lot of open space in my brain where <laughs> you've got a notebook with you constantly um, where you're jotting different ideas down and everything else. So now I, I, I truly I can't thank you enough for the opportunities here. And uh, and it's been great. I, I do appreciate everything you've done for me. It uh, it's it's been great so far. And we're. We're, we're, we're growing. Um, you know, it's, we, we certainly haven't slowed down. So things are going as well as could be expected. I think we're good. You got anything else, Patrick? Well, I can only say, uh, I feel the same way about your involvement with the company. Well, I appreciate that. And, uh, I tell you what, why don't we get you, uh, we get you back on here maybe later this summer after we've done some, uh, some fishing trips and it'll be more of an informal, um, shooting a shit about uh, survival field craft and things like that to where people learn a little bit uh, from your years of experience in the, in the field. Deal. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Patrick. Appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.